Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in uh, Lisa Hornby. She is the head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income over at Schroeder's, and she can talk with us about, um, well, first off, Lisa, what do you make of the moves we're seeing today in sovereign bonds? You know, rates markets are always kind of funny, right? You get a PPI print, which admittedly is at expectation, but still nearly 9%. And you have, you have U.S. rates rallying and the curve actually flattening. Um, I, you know, I think the bottom line is that the Fed has basically given markets the green light to um, take a little bit of risk, although admittedly we're not seeing that in equity markets today, but in bond markets, they're saying we're not doing anything for the foreseeable future. Some of the rate hikes that were discounted into markets a week ago have come out. Um, you're hearing a little bit more about Lael Brennard on the on the you know, maybe more dovish side of the equation. Um, that's perhaps giving a little bit of a bid to rates markets. Um, and, you know, just generally, I think the, the move to higher yields happened fairly quickly and perhaps um, perhaps a little too quickly uh, for markets. And I think we're just getting a bit of a reversal of that right now. Lisa, it's really interesting because early in the year or late last year, you made a prediction about inflation and you made a prediction about how uh, the Fed may need to start to move <laughs> to control it. I'm wondering now, as we head towards the end of 2021, what you're expecting into next year. Yeah, so our view on inflation, particularly early this year and late last year was that it was going to be much longer lasting than markets expected it to be. And I think we are getting, um, you know, some, some satisfaction on that. You were right. Uh, in, in that, in that transitory is, uh, is not necessarily a number of months, but being measured in maybe years. Um, and, and, and our, you know, our view is, is still fairly consistent. We think some of the inflation we're seeing today will come off. Some of these supply chain issues will certainly moderate. Um, but inflation is probably still going to run higher for the next several years than it has done over the last several years. Um, a number of reasons for that, you know, ranging from Fed policy to the political environment that we're in to, frankly, uh, a lot of the efforts being made um, by, by, by governments to move towards more sustainable uh, policies in terms of infrastructure and energy policy. I mean, those will require huge investments in commodities, in our view, that it still um, need to be priced into markets. So this should be a, a fairly supportive environment for inflation. Um, now, that being said, we're still faced with the fact that the Fed is seemingly erring towards overweighting its employment side of its mandate versus the inflation side. And so I think that they are very cognizant of, of, of getting to full, in, in, uh, excuse me, full employment um, and letting inflation run a bit hotter than it has in the past. They've been fairly explicit about that. And I think if Reynard is, in fact, the new Fed chair, um, that you know, she will take an even more aggressive stance on that. Um, if that's true, then the market has gone went pretty far in discounting almost at 1.3 rate hikes into 2022. In our view, that was probably too aggressive. Maybe it should be done, but it's not necessarily what this Fed is going to deliver. 
Um, so that's why we're, you know, we are being, we're, we're more cognizant of a range trading environment in rates. Yes, we think 10 years should probably be a bit higher than they are today, uh-huh. um, but it's not necessarily, can't, can't get there all in one fell swoop. I think we need to have a little bit of give and take in the markets. Lisa, what do you buy right now? I mean, you spent a decade in the trenches as a PM before you became the big boss as the head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income. It's probably not easy. Uh, yeah, this is sort of an understatement uh, for the whole team, I'm sure. Um, you know, markets are, are challenging right now. You look at valuations across particularly credit markets, and you see that they're in the bottom decile of their historical ranges. So nothing really looks cheap, particularly on the corporate side. There is a little bit of opportunity opening up, in our view, on the emerging market side. We have seen um, you know, some of these issuers underperform a bit as, as the dollar has been fairly strong, and that's been a headwind for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are starting to take a little bit of a dip into into some of the EM names, particularly those with, with strong capital accounts, those are, that are more geared to the U.S. and global economic recovery, those geared to, towards commodities, as, as um, I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, there's also perhaps some opportunity in some of the securitized markets as well, um, less so maybe on the, the agency space, but a little bit more on um, in areas like AAA CLOs that we still like that still look from a valuation perspective reasonable compared to the rest of the alternatives. They're floating rate in nature. They're short duration. Um, so where we can pick spread there, we like the, we like the, the structure. Outside of that, it's really hard to make a compelling argument for fixed income. I mean, if we're being completely frank, uh, it's more of a carry environment at best. There's not a lot of potential, in our view, for further spread compression from here. So we're waiting uh, for a little bit more volatility in markets to take advantage of that. Well, I hope we get to talk to you again, Lisa. Great to get some time with you. Thanks very much for joining us. Lisa Hornby is the head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income over at Schroeder's. Let's get back to um, uh, more realistic corporate stories. Dream Hotel Group. I'm sure that Jay Stein wouldn't mind a $2.47 trillion valuation, although it would probably be a lot more work. You'd have to hire a lot more people, and that's not easy in this economy. Jay Stein is the chief executive officer of the Dream Hotel Group. Jay, I want to start there with with hiring people, because when we talk to you here on Bloomberg Radio uh, recently, You've pointed out that it's not easy to get employees in. Has that changed at all? Not much, unfortunately. Uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, you know, it's still a, a very difficult to uh, to attract people to come back to work. Um, also, our industry, uh, it's it's been difficult. Uh, people uh, are opting to stay at home if they can or maybe not come back into cities if they've uh, vacated the city. So it's, it's still a challenge. We're doing a lot of interesting things uh, in our different hotels, uh, you know, offering incentives and uh, offering parking and, and many different things to try and make it uh, more comfortable for people to uh, look at us as an opportunity. But it, it is still very difficult. Yeah, we're, we've been wondering about this. What is keeping people from coming back? What can bring them back? Is it a matter of wages, uh, especially in hospitality? It's it's harder to be flexible in terms of working from home. I mean, what can you do to kind of support the demands of this workforce? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think part of it is maybe immigration, right? Maybe we need more people in the country uh, that are going to look to take jobs that other people are just don't want to take. And we need more more people available to work in the workforce. 
Um, other than that, uh, you know, I said, you know, let's end the uh, enhanced unemployment. And, you know, I, uh, that, that's ended. Uh, I think unemployment in, in general is going to start to, uh, uh, you know, stop for a number of people. And uh, people are going to, you know, realize that, that they need to go back to work. But, you know, I don't think that's really the, the answer. It's, it's, a, it's a unique situation that we're in. And uh, a lot of the younger people are looking at life differently. And um, we're going to have to find solutions because, as you said, my industry is dead without without workers. So, um, Well, the, the economists will tell us, Jay, um, uh, and the Federal Reserve will say we're not at full employment yet. So before we start bringing new people into the country, we still have uh, a lot of people that are out there looking for jobs or could be looking for jobs or should be looking for jobs. What do you think is keeping them on the sidelines? I think they have savings, and I think they still are getting unemployment. And uh, they're saying, you know, I want to do what I want to do. Um, and until they're, you know, out of unemployment and their savings are dwindling, they're staying on the sidelines. All right, let's get back to the um, business of travel and leisure, the hotel business as borders are opening up. Um, I think yesterday was November 8th, right? So um, Europeans are coming back into the U.S. Do you feel that? Have you seen already a big bump in reservations and uh, occupancy? Yeah, we definitely see an increase. Um, I wouldn't say a big bump yet. It's going to ramp up. Um, but I do think, um, you know, we're coming into the holiday season. We'll see a good impact. The U.K. is a great feeder market into the New York markets. Um, but what I am excited about is I, I think we'll see a bigger business coming through in January and February than we normally would because of all the pent-up demand. I think there'll be cheap flights coming over from Europe. And uh, with Broadway open and with restaurants open, with great, you know, luxury-type shopping, more, more reasonable here than it is typically in Europe, uh, I do think you'll see uh, a better business coming in those months where it's usually yeah. slow for us. I mean, it's interesting because we talk about things about to reopen more. If you've walked through Times Square or the theater district, you can't really walk far. It's so crowded. (laughs) And so I'm wondering, Jay, you know, for the people who are, do you have pricing pressure here? Is it getting more expensive? Is it going to become difficult very soon for people to get rooms when they're looking to travel? Uh, No, I don't think we're at that point yet. Our hotels, uh, you know, we have five hotels here in New York. We just opened the Chatwell Hotel uh, just last Monday. That was the last of our properties that was still closed, and that's our high-end luxury property. And we have two dream hotels uh, in the time that have all been open since May. And we're still not back to uh, regular occupancy levels. And the city runs higher than most areas. We're typically close to 90%. And we're still down in around the 70% range. So there's still a a lot of rooms. Inflation for us to have lifted the rates, like we're seeing in other industries, has not come to us yet uh, in New York, uh, although I'm sure it will over the next year. And uh, I think we'll hit uh, new highs in ADRs that we haven't seen yet in the city. Yeah, I mean – I, I imagine that you're going to have to lift prices at some point to get your margins back to normal, right? Because you have to pay people more. Exactly. Exactly. And I think uh, I think the public, just like you, you know, when we go out to eat now, you're paying probably 30% more for an entree than you did a year and a half ago. But, you know, you're still going out to dinner. And I think that instead of paying 325 for a room and you're paying 375 and you're going for a weekend, uh, you'll be happy to pay it and, and stay in a great hotel. So. I think that's uh, you know something that the industry actually has the opportunity to look forward to and be able to raise rates. Rates have been stagnant for, for a long period of time right now. 
Jay, great to get your insight. Always appreciate you having you on the program. Thanks so much for your time. Jay Stein is the chief executive officer of the Dream Hotel Group, talking to us about employment, international travel, and inflation. Uh, really important um, insight there. Let's talk about uh, a little bit more about what's going on in the labor market, especially from the perspective of the housing industry industry. Um, But I first want to tell you that Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth. Supporting more than 2,000 independent financial advisors with solutions they need to grow a thriving business, Commonwealth. Go where you grow. Visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Now let's get to Jack Trong right now. Uh, He joins us, uh, the CEO of James Hardy, to talk about this market, uh, this uh, housing market and the difficulty in hiring people, has it gotten any better, Jack? Um, no, good morning, Matt. Um, uh, certainly within the new construction um, markets, um, the, um, it, it's still quite tenable. Uh, but but we, we also are exposed to the remodeling segment, and, um, and it's actually not as bad as in the new construction side. Well, I'm wondering how long this construction boom really goes on for. You know, I know a lot of people who are looking to build a home right now (laughs) are facing so many delays. And I'm wondering if there's a point at which this starts to uh, taper off, whether more people coming back into the workforce will start to ease some of that pain. Personality, you know, new construction uh, is really very, uh, quite a complex um, supply chain to build uh, new homes, right? And you, you have uh, um, the different different type of products that go into building home, like with appliances, win- windows, doors, and so on and so forth. So you have and also have different uh, skill labor to complete the home. Uh, so we we don't see that going to be abated anytime soon. Uh, certainly, the, at least within the next year or so. Uh, but where we see um, really the light at the end of the tunnel is really in the remodeling side. Where, uh, where there's a there's a uh, the, the uptick in in the uh, remodeling of, of the big ticket items, uh, big ticket project like the residing, remodeling, or, or, or fixing your the exterior of your homes, um, that that's been growing quite nicely this past quarter. It's really grew by 13 percent, and uh, and since it's the the supply chain is not as complex, and, and we do see uh, the labor uh, is uh, is quite readily available in, in that uh, remodeling segment. So um, the remodeling is your focus, but it does seem like this market needs more new construction. It needs more supply. Um, how do you see that? Well, um, you know, so there are new construction to really add about between 6 to 8% of, of homes to, to the housing stock in America today. So it's still a relatively small part of, of the housing availability in the U.S. Um, so um, in, in the short term, yeah, it is, it's going to be uh, limited in terms of the new construction start. I think we kind of hover around 1.1 million single-family new construction right now for several months now. And, uh, and also because of that complex supply chain, as well as the lack of skilled labor, we, we don't see that changing anytime soon. But where we see more and more is that homeowners are not going to move from their homes. And so there's more tendency now for the homeowner to stay where, where they're at and then to put that money to renovate and, and remodeling their homes. 
you're not going to believe this, guys, but my parents actually moved to India for four months because their house is so far delayed <laughs> in being created and they had to sell. I'm wondering about next year. Does it get better given that we're not going to see so much new supply so quickly? Yeah, I think um, I think the ne- next year will, will get better as the as the industry works out of the uh, com- complex supply chain for new construction. Um, but um, it, you know, but, but anything can 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 happen from now to then. And certainly, uh, you know, with the interest rate continue to be lowest as it is now, then uh, we, we're going to see that the demand for housing yeah, that might start to rise. Um, we only have a minute or so left here, but what about climate change? You know, it's interesting because I'm wondering what you're doing to kind of prepare for bad weather <laughs> into the winter and and all of these crazy fires that we've been seeing as well. Well, the Sonali, and that's, that, that's a very, very good question. You know, we're, we're very fortunate, James Hardy, that, that we had a very unique uh, technology that were our product made from uh, from our fiber cement technology. And not only that, we deliver the different designs and, and aesthetic to the to the homes, but they also protect the home from all the elements. You know, it, it is non-combustible. Um, it also du- durable that we guarantee for 30 years. Um, and at the same time, is uh, is rated for hurricanes. You know, it can be it can withstand winds uh, up to 220 miles per hour, um, and it's also rated by FEMA as a class five um, in in a class five flood zone. So it's quite uh, uh, moisture resistant. So our product is really um, uh, quite um, well suited for for the changing climate right now. All right, Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Jack Trong there, Chief Executive Officer at James Hardy, talking to us about the housing market and um, the renovation situation right now. All right, let's talk about our uh, big take story of the day. Reddit's latest obsession is the Fed's reverse repo facility. Alex Harris wrote the story and he's here to talk about it with us. So, um, Alex, this is something that, we are often obsessed with as well. And as you point out, money market traders are glued to the screen every day to see the results of the reverse repo agreement. Can you explain what it is to the layman? Yeah. So what has happened is, you know, when the Fed does these asset purchases, when the Treasury is holding on to a lot of cash um, and they start sort of removing that or spending that down, that all goes into the into the financial system. And so what the Fed's reverse repo facility has been created to do is to actually mop up this so-called excess liquidity. That there's just there's too much out there and so this facility has been designed to sort of, you know, redirect some of it so as to not overwhelm the financial system and financial markets. So I don't understand why the everyday trader who's normally interested in the stock market, which they can actually participate in, is so obsessed with reverse repo, which they have no exposure to. Yeah, you know, Shelley, it's a good question. And one even after this story, I'm still asking myself a bit um just because i happened to glance at the at the comments on reddit in response to the story um you know i think it's sort of almost like an instinctive thing when you see a number like this growing and then you start assigning sort of a size and scope to it um 
there has to be some like absolutely insane reason as to why something is behaving the way it is when it when it's growing like this. Um, you know, and and really, you know, the reverse repo facility, like on its on its front, you know, people keep saying, "Well, thanks for making repo fun again." It's just intended to be boring. It's intended to just clean up the market. You know, it's well, but not, not at these as, levels, right? I mean, it's huge. This isn't something that's insignificant. It's not no. like you know, uh, move away. There's nothing to see here. There is something to no. see here. I mean, I think if anything, it's telling you that what the Fed and the Treasury did in response to to the economic catastrophe that was the COVID pandemic in, in the early uh, days of it um, was actually monumental because that's what essentially we're cleaning up right now is that the, remember the Fed is still doing quantitative easing; it's still purchasing Treasuries and it's still purchasing mortgage-backed securities. Um, you know, so it's still pumping cash into the system, and and it's quite a lot, you know. And we're also getting cash from the Treasury because they were holding a $1.8 trillion cash balance, which was just unprecedented as well. I mean, we hadn't had when – the, when the reverse repo facility was created, it was – in 2013 at first launch, we didn't have fiscal policy and monetary policy. You know, monetary mm-hmm. policy, I, I think it was uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate had told Ben Bernanke it was the only, you know, they were the only game in town. Right. And and so that's why you didn't see but the level in, in a that sense, we're seeing though, now. In a sense, though, the, the explosion in the reverse repo facility is emblematic of um, the the amount of cash going into things like GameStonk and uh, BitDog, right? I mean, there's just so much cash out there with no place to go. Um, these big institutions are putting it the RRP, but uh, Wall Street Bets bros are putting it into AMC. You know, I, I think it is emblematic of the fact that there is just too much cash out there, period. I, you know, I think, you know, when you look at the you know, amount of money it costs for a used car or a used phone, you know, yes, it is. But, you know, remember, these are money market funds that are primarily using the reverse repo facility. Um, You know, these aren't the banks. The banks have, you know, interest on reserve balances that pay 15 basis points for cash. And this is is money funds. You make this other point in the story that I think is really important. It's really important for people to understand how the Fed works, especially the most, you know, basic – things to keep the economy safe, right? But you have said that there's a lot of Fed misinformation. Well, run by a very dangerous man, though, according oh to Elizabeth goodness. Warren. Well, let's not go there. But, you know, th- there's a lot of Fed misinformation spreading on Twitter. You know, what are some of the misconceptions that people have about this that then need to be debunked? You know, I think because, again, it's so big and and. You really have to, I think, want to understand exactly how the mechanics of the financial system works. And with that, you have to understand kind of how these Fed facilities work. And and one of the things that, you you know, that was a misconception that we found is that um, hedge funds were regular users of the reverse repo facility. And they were taking, you know, the securities that they were getting from the Fed in these operations and and then lending them out um, and or using them as collateral. Um, which is not the case because hedge funds are not counterparties to the reverse repo facility. You know, the bulk of the counterparties that actually use it are money market funds, follow, followed by your, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and, and your federal home loan banks. So that was a big one. You know, the other the other misconception is the idea is that the larger this gets, um, the more likely it pretends some sort of uh, economic collapse. 
um, when, in fact, you know, the, the Fed had created um, the reverse repo facility and the, now the, what's called the standing repo facility to sort of, um, you know, guard the market, you know, against these sort of uh, catastrophes, especially in the plumbing market, you know, where things can be so fragile and so sensitive, as we saw even, you know, in 2019, you know, when overnight repo spiked to 10 percent. It's like crutches. According to your, you have a great, um, you quote a great Reddit user, Old Man Repo. He says his mom thought he was out there um, stealing cars, like the great Emilio Estevez film Repo Man. (laughs) Um, he's doing something else, Mom. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what it is, and I, I think he had actually, you know, it was such a it was such a nice analogy because that's exactly what it is. Is that you know what had happened was, you know, the COVID and the and the pandemic and everything broke, and the reverse repo facility is sort of what you're using to sort of get back to to health, and and so that's what we're seeing right now. It's just that you know again unprecedented times called for unprecedented amounts of liquidity from both the Fed and the Treasury. And and that's why we're getting the usage that we're using. And and because, again, it's a piece of the plumbing and no one really looks at the plumbing unless it breaks. It's why we we are getting the reaction we're getting. Alex, thanks so much. Alex Harris writing our big take story for today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.